0: Welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. I'm Grant Wall, and our topic today is Russia in World Cup 2018. Our guest is James Appel. James is a graduate in sports management from Columbia University and a freelance writer who lived in Moscow until last fall, having covered Russian sports for more than a decade. Thanks for joining me, James. Thanks for having me, Grant. Really cool to to have you here. Excited to talk about this topic, Russia and World Cup 2018. I know we're two years away, a little less than two years away, but there's lots to talk about. First off, I just wanted to kind of have you explain to our listeners here uh, your background with Russia.
1: Sure. Um, I uh, actually studied uh, Russian history as an undergraduate student over in the UK, and uh, emerging from uh, the academic sphere and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I um, I decided do what you love and what I loved was writing about soccer and um, as you can probably imagine um, in the US, never mind in the UK, it's a pretty busy marketplace for people who want to write and um, somebody told me, well, you need to find your niche, you know, you need to find your space in this particular environment where you can write authoritatively um, uh, better than anyone else and Russia, it was, I'd been watching... Russian soccer as a kind of uh, masochistic uh, <laughs> interest for, for a few years um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and um, I guess turned that into a professional enterprise. And I guess, you know, it's one of those subjects um, that periodically raises interest um, outside of, of uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. Um, and Russia 2018, obviously, one of those subjects. Um, prior to this, you know, people have periodically come to me and asked me for uh, the lowdown on what's going on over there. And mm-hmm. so I, I just carry on with it keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening over there. So how long did you live in Russia? You speak Russian, right? I speak Russian. Uh, da. <laughs> uh, th- three and a half years in total to, I served, uh, if you like. And a um, uh, couple of years um, was my longest stretch up to last fall, and then my wife and I um, moved over to New York for um, for a new challenge and adventure. So yeah, I um, I like to think that I've kind of over the years built up a an understanding of what makes Russia and Russians tick, and um, and it, and it's not entirely simple. I think. Uh, Russia's one of those very difficult places to really get under the skin of. Um, the language is is a big challenge for a lot of visitors. Um, and the legacy of um, 80 years of Soviet Union and all that entails politically and with mm-hmm. regard to how ordinary Russians understand the world and understand and relate to foreigners, non-Russians, um, can make it a challenge to really get the real story. So mm. um, it it definitely pays to go there for a long period of time, learn the language, build up relationships, because that's, I guess, how I hopefully am able to tell some interesting stories today.
0: Yeah. I, I want to start with what I think is the question on a lot of fans' minds just before we get into specifics. This World Cup is going to happen in Russia in 2018, correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think... It's fair to say that there has been doubt periodically since the decision was made in December 2010. I mean, the first doubt was obviously the circumstances of in which FIFA awarded the World Cup right. to begin with. Um, there's a very well-known story about an investigation that took place um, several years after the award um, in which the Russians were asked to turn over the computers that they'd used to build the bid, uh, and the Russians said, oh, no." We rented those computers. We returned them to the company we rented them from, and all the information's been destroyed. Sorry. Um, I, so we've moved on from that. I think. Um, I, I still, just as an aside, would say there's maybe a more more of a question mark over Qatar, mm-hmm. if FIFA and the football world really had to sort of choose between going strong on Russia or going strong on Qatar. I think we've we know where we are with that. The second question has been the actual planning and construction and mm-hmm. um, there's some detail i can go into on the the way in which russia has built their infrastructure for 2018 and some of the problems associated with that there definitely are um, some serious and not so serious questions about russia's readiness to host at this stage okay and um, the stadiums um are always an issue. Um, we saw in Brazil that there were stadiums being built two weeks prior to right. opening day. Um, and so I guess we shouldn't necessarily talk about Russia as a special case here. That that happened in South Africa and as well. Nevertheless, the, the way in which one stadium in particular in St. Petersburg has dominated headlines negatively about mm. um, Russia's preparedness has been a real concern to um, the soccer world and to Russians as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that stadium now, um, by most estimates, is the most expensive stadium ever built in history. Um, it's, in the world? Yeah. So they've managed to kind of fudge it a little because the <laughs> Russian ruble exchange rate has fallen by about 40% in the last mm-hmm. uh, two years. So um, it's kind of been a nice uh, flip side of that particular problem has been the, the money that they spent up to 2014 they can just devalue now. But it's, I'd say, on old money, um, costing them something like one point five million uh, $1.5 billion and <coughs> running.
0: Um,
1: why? Why? Um, combination of things. They're building it on an island in the middle of the uh, river that runs through St. Petersburg, and they're having problems with drainage. They're having problems with the foundations. Just this week, um, the head of Gazprom, um, who... Uh, Long story, but one of the owners of Saint Petersburg uh, soccer team Zenit, who uh, will be the ultimate occupiers of that stadium, mm. and also is involved in the sponsorship of and financing of that stadium, uh, the head of that company visited the stadium and you know did the photo call with the hard hats walking around, and um, they had some serious flooding issues inside huh. the stadium at the time. Wow. And um, so he's walking around doing a press call, and uh, it turns out that. The problems really that have been ongoing for three, four, five years, they've actually been building it for nearly 10 years, Wow. Um, still ongoing. And the promise is that it will be ready by the spring of 2017 in time for hosting the Confederations Cup. Still a question mark over that.
0: Wow. I mean, I guess one question I have when I think back to Sochi and the huge cost there, so much of that was attributed to corruption. Mm. Um, is that part of the reason for the cost on this St. Petersburg stadium, or is it just other stuff?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be too naive about that. There's definitely snouts in troughs. Um, that's, that's the nature, I'm afraid, of business in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading something about the testimony of one of the construction workers who actually um, quit after two days on the uh, project to build the St. Petersburg uh, soccer stadium. Um, he actually answered um, a call to work from one of the subcontractors uh, uh, on a message on a social network. I mean, that's how they're hiring. And so a bunch of guys just turned up having received the call from, you know, Facebook. And um, they just said, okay, you, you, you look kind of big. You can go and work on the roof. And you look kind of stocky. You can go and work on the drainage. And uh, it was a complete disaster. And it's mainly because... The financing comes into a single pot and then contractors and subcontractors and sub-subcontractors all get involved, um, they're all on the take, they're all looking for the cheapest labour possible to make their margins a bit, go a bit further. Um, it's, it's not an unusual story but I think, you know, um, it's not what we expect from the world's arguably uh, most important and most watched sporting event every four years.
0: Well, one thing that people have said in the past is that authoritarian states, and we could have a discussion, I guess, on whether you think Russia is, I, I, on the face of it, I would say, yeah, more, more so than a lot of other countries, uh, tend to organize sit, you know, big sporting events like the World Cup or the Olympics with less trouble, like they can get things done. But it sounds like the stadium is having trouble getting done in one of the showpiece cities of the World Cup.
1: I mean, this is a particularly complex architectural and logistical um, uh, stadium project. Mm -hmm. Um, It strikes me that um, another issue here is not so much the political sphere, but the economic sphere in Russia. So Mm -hmm. never mind um, the fact that uh, these stadiums are expensive. Um, When you count in the fact that uh, two years ago, Russia suffered a a serious recession, a serious currency devaluation. Mm. Um, I was actually there at the time, and um, on the day in, I think it was October 2014, when uh, the ruble lost, um, I think it lost about 30 to 40% of its value against Mm. the dollar in a single day. And I can remember people queuing up at um, ATMs and people standing outside currency exchange uh, offices watching the number um, of rubles that would uh, buy dollars fall and kept falling and kept falling wow. until the Moscow um, government ordered that these boards that showed the dollar to ruble exchange rate be shut off because it was mm. causing panic. And it, I mean, I think that no matter how in control the government and um, the political authorities are um, of the country, When you have such a a rapid and destabilizing economic uh, collapse like that, um, which has actually been exacerbated because the US and EU have been imposing sanctions, Mm -hmm. Um, banks in Russia are now, um, most of them, excluded from the international marketplace. Mm -hmm. So financing is much harder to come by. Um, Russia has had to dip into its um, sovereign wealth fund that it was building up um, with its oil profits from the 2000s so uh, you know overall I think whilst you can say that you know China did a fantastic job of putting on an Olympic Games precisely because it's able to do more or less whatever it wants Mm -hmm. to get things done the same applies to a degree in Russia but when the economy starts to um, starts to suffer I think it really imposes certain intractable issues on the government
0: In what specific ways are we going to see this economic decline represented in people experiencing the World Cup there in 2018? Like, I think about oil prices having just cratered in the last few years, and that's a huge impact on Russia. Like, what were the original plans, like grand plans, and and now what are we looking at in terms of kind of, you know, fewer plans?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the... $64,000 sixty four thousand dollar question, if you like, probably a bit more than that actually um, <laughs> and I think on the upside for visitors from outside russia um it's going to be significantly cheaper mm-hmm. uh, a proposition to visit the russian world cup you know i'm I'm not on the payroll of, of of you know the russia tourist board, so so but I do think it's well worth people considering the trip, mm-hmm. and now that you know it's forty to fifty percent the price to visit stay, travel, buy food mm-hmm. um, than it was two years ago, uh, it's a, it's a much more attractive proposition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: On the other side, um, and I go back again to the question of infrastructure, Russia did have very ambitious plans for building high-speed railways mm. and uh, six-lane brand-new highways between its host cities. Mm. I mean, Russia's an enormous place. Mm. and. Uh, for visitors to travel between stadiums, between host cities, uh, and into and out of Russia, um, I would say that accepting Moscow and St. Petersburg, a lot needs to be done to help smooth that particular mm-hmm. uh, path. Um, there were plans to build high-speed rail pretty much connecting all the cities, and that has been quietly parked. It's just far too expensive a proposition. Um, at the moment in terms of road building and um logistics really the only project that's come to fruition is is a highway between moscow and st petersburg which kind Hmm. of already is connecting two cities that are the best connected in russia (laughs) and um, where that leaves some of the outer lying group stage host yeah. cities, Saransk, I mean, no one will know. I, any any of the listeners who uh, have heard of Saransk, never mind been there, are already, you know, doing well in comparison <laughs> to the average. Saransk, you know, is one of the most easterly um, mm-hmm. host cities. Um, ideally, you'd fly there mm-hmm. at the moment. There's no convenient train that wouldn't take less than 24 hours to get yeah, from Moscow. Um same same. traveling to the south. I mm. mean, Moscow and Sochi are very well connected um, by uh, air. Right. But, you know, those plane tickets are going to be a, a hot property. So mm. um, the original plan was, obviously, to provide ground transport as well. But I think, you know, looking at it two years out, that's a, a much less likely proposition. So get your get your air tickets in early if that's <laughs> what you're planning to do.
0: How... Good is the Russian domestic airline. Is it safe? Safe, okay. safe enough. Okay, <laughs> I mean I've, that's a ringing endorsement. <laughs> I think anybody who's travelled
1: internally in Russia has got their share of uh, scare stories. Yeah, I mean, um, I remember taking a plane in early two thousands from Moscow to St Petersburg. Again, a very busy route. Yeah, and um, the plane was so cramped that you had to uh, you had to kind of push the seat in front of you forward to access the, the window seat. Um, it was kind of like if you imagine a two-door car where to get into the back, you had to like push the seat forward. <laughs> and I think they've phased those particular planes out of service now. But yeah, it, Russian internal flights, not always a barrel of laughs. That said, um, I think going back, uh, going back to the political element of yeah. this, the government will ensure that the private airlines... Put their best fleet into service. Um, They'll make sure they rejig all of the planes around so that fans coming in will be able to use like the best of the best. So yeah, I I don't have any fears touch wood about, um, about issues around air travel.
0: I've yet to visit Russia. I'm looking forward to actually going there for the first time. I know a lot of fans who are hoping to go to Russia have not been there before. Are there any other aspects of the fan experience for this World Cup that are worth pointing out? And I guess specifically, when I, I look at, you know, this topic, I mean, will gay fans be safe and welcome? And even stuff like, do people not want to take their laptops there? Because like, we we hear sometimes about, you know, like your bank information security being in in danger your laptop information uh i know it's a lot to digest but what's your sense on all that so
1: i think i can address the the gay uh the gay experience that sounds somewhat generalistic but um you know uh i think i would tread advisedly um in provincial cities uh, not as well-connected and not as uh, cosmopolitan as Moscow and St. Petersburg. And it isn't just gay people. It can be certain ethnic minorities. It can be, you know, cho- choosing what to d- to dress, what how to dress, what to mm. wear. There's just a, a, a less broad uh, cultural experience there. And I think mm-hmm. you you can sometimes, I think, tread over the line of attracting too much attention. Now, that sounds a little bit scaremongery, but I just think it's, you know, it's about being um, being aware of your environment in the way mm-hmm. that, say, walking around the south side of Chicago might not necessarily be a great idea mm-hmm. uh, for some people. So, uh, yeah, I, I I do think that there's a... There's a limit to your freedom to act and um a limit to your sort of what's what's advisable behavior mm. but, i mean that's so euphemistic, but you know as a, as a general sort of point mm. just understand that some of these places until the mid nineteen nineties were more or less you know cut off from outside world western mm-hmm. um Kind of twenty first century style influences, liberalism, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as security and information security is concerned, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I you work as a journalist in Russia, you sort of take your personal security and identity security, you know, into your own hands. And Touchwood never really had any issues there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The general fan experience, you know, a lot of people a lot of uh, listeners may have heard about racism may have heard about the stadium experience being somewhat more aggressive than um, they may be used to uh, I think that is a difference between going to watch a club game uh, in the Russian top flight on a cold you know february afternoon and going to watch international soccer in brand new stadiums mm-hmm. uh, in a sunny June. Mm. Um, I think it will attract a different type of fan. I think it will just uh, have a, a very different atmosphere. But yeah, look, Russian domestic soccer, football fans being violent towards one another, the stadium stadium experience being less than pleasant, that's, that happens, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I I remember when Ukraine co-hosted Euro 2012, and we saw a lot of examples of, in the domestic league, racism in the stands. Um, uh, In some cases, um, lack of security in the stands. Um, I don't recall that really carrying over to Euro 2012 itself, And that's not to minimize the the very real problem that does exist there. Is that sort of similar? It's exactly the same. I I, I just think that
1: all of those tribalistic behaviors and loyalties and practices uh, are really a product of the domestic soccer environment. And um, hopefully, um, although we saw some issues around um, Russian soccer fans traveling to France this summer, Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of... Go against the general tone of my point here hopefully it won't bleed over into the international arena i mean and i think that your point about euro 2012 is is a, is a good one it's a fair comparison
0: i do remember covering euro 2012 and being in the stadium in warsaw poland when russia played poland obviously a lot of history between russia and poland and i remember the russian fans holding up this giant banner that said in english This is Russia. And it was very kind of menacing, Mm -hmm. was like the word I would use to describe it. My sense is Russian fans are very nationalistic and and will be as much or ever during this World Cup. Um, And what's that going to be like? So the fans who travel
1: away from home with the Russian national team... There is certainly a degree of political support that they're given in order to do that. Uh, So there's an organization called the All Russian Society of Soccer Fans. Their um, president, if you like, is a member of Vladimir Putin's political party. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly in terms of organization and financing, they are connected, let's say, to politics. Mm -hmm. And I think... You know to step away from the soccer for a second and talk a bit about you know the political arena again vladimir putin and the russian government have tread this very fine line of having russian soccer fans be at the vanguard of a kind of um russian national strength Mm -hmm. you know um an outward projection of russia's um return to world power status um, after the 90s and since you know the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. That said, they have found in certain circumstances at, at, at the Euros this summer, for example, where their attempt to stoke the fires of nationalism has got out of control. Like mm-hmm. They do not have full control over the behavior of these fans. Mm-hmm. And so this sort of convenient kind of political football they have, excuse the pun, um, for, uh, you know, Russian fans to just go and, and be, you know, Russia's representatives abroad and kind of throw their weight about a bit and say, hey, we're back, mm-hmm. um, it can backfire. Um, so what's that going to be like in 2018? I actually, I actually think it's easier for Russia's police and political powers to to, to police to look after and to regulate the behavior of those kinds of fans in Russia than Mm. it is outside Russia. I would think. And so I think you may see on the streets of stadiums uh, during 2018 um, fully armed riot police Mm. and um, probably also members of the secret service, not that you'd see them necessarily. and I think that that will... I mean, Russians may feel as though they can mess about with, you know, the French uh, gendarmerie, mm-hmm. but they definitely know that they shouldn't mess with uh, the, the, the the police um, battalion, the OMON, they're called, the special services. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the guys that you see with, you know, full body armor, helmets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, serious weaponry. Right. I don't think uh, anybody who um, is part of the kind of that Russian football-supporting national vanguard is mm-hmm. ever going to step too far out of line when those guys are around.
0: Okay. Another aspect of nationalism is pride in your team. Mm-hmm. And Russia is not a very good national team, I think. It's a <laughs> pretty, pretty straight, Grant. Yeah. At, at, at this point. Uh, three straight major tournaments out in the group stage, uh, Euro 2012 and 2016, World Cup 2014. Um what does that mean, and can they get better?
1: I think what it means is that going back to Euro 2008, when the team uh, finished as bronze medalists, um, that increasingly looks like an exception rather than a rule. Mm-hmm. At the time, in 2008, they, um, they had this emerging generation of players, um, Andreas Shavin being probably the best known, and a coach, Gus Hiddink, who I guess was at the apex of his powers, you know, he'd taken South Korea uh, mm-hmm. also to the um, latter stages of the 2002 World Cup. And um, I think that, you know, that now in retrospect looks like that was the that was the high point for Russian soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, what we've had is that generation really disappoint and they've got older and most of them have passed on now. Um, ironically, uh, we haven't really seen the same success that Gus Hiddink had of other Russian coaches, uh, sorry, foreign coaches who were brought in by Russia because, hey, look, Hiddink proved that a foreign coach is what we need. So we had a succession with Dick Advocar, Then we had uh, Fabio Capello, both of whom I think, well... I definitely failed, but I think failed in in very specific ways because they didn't really grapple with the problem of that generation of Russian players. Mm-hmm. Kind of, they'd achieved what they needed to achieve in two thousand eight. I think mm-hmm. they sat back. A lot of them off the back of two thousand eight went abroad. So Pavluchenko, Ashavin, mm-hmm. uh, Billy ladinov went to Everton, uh, Smertin. Uh, left russia as well went to chelsea for a while Zhirkov, yeah Zhirkov as well um those guys i guess kind of after 2008 were like hey we you know we did what we needed to do um and since then i mean they failed to qualify for 2010 world Mm -hmm. cup and three successive tournaments since then as you say very very disappointing there's a new generation coming through how good they are very hard to say because so many of them are playing in the Russian domestic league mm-hmm. that the comparison and understanding like the level of quality there is very hard to to look at it in isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's happening in Russian soccer is that the after probably 10 years of lobbying uh, by clubs and by certain members of um, the fan base, mm-hmm. Russia started to give passports to uh, foreign players. Huh. Um, now that's that's there's two reasons why that's happening one is they are recognizing a serious deficit of talent mm-hmm. so they they gave a passport to a german uh, i guess brought up german actually born in ukraine uh, roman neustetter who mm-hmm. um currently plays in turkey uh, but but played for several years in Schalke and actually went to uh, euro 2016 with the russian national team this mm-hmm. year Uh, Another Brazilian goalkeeper, Guilherme, who's played in Russia for about a decade. A couple of other uh, Brazilian uh, midfielders. Um, They've just started to sort of break down the sort of mental barrier of, is it okay that we do this? And I think we'll see over the next year or two, coming up to 2018, a few more of the players given the chance uh, with a Russian passport to try out for the national team. The other reason that's happening is that Russia brought in a um, limit on foreign players Mm -hmm. for its domestic league. Um, There's now, I believe, only five uh, foreigners in a a starting 11 allowed. And foreigners doesn't mean uh, outside the former Soviet Union or whatever. It means people who are non-Russian. So a Ukrainian Hmm. international would count as a foreigner. A Kazakh would count as a foreigner. That's
0: a a recent change recent limit right yeah
1: yeah and um the 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 effect of that has been again uh russian clubs unwillingness or being less willing to purchase big ticket foreign players Mm -hmm. and also lobbying by those teams oh we've had this guy in our team he's from brazil for five six years just can we sort of take him off our foreigners list so we can buy another one Mm -hmm. so in some cases the government and the football authorities have uh acceded to that and given them russian citizenship
0: and this naturalizing of players is in line with fifa regulations oh right? absolutely yeah, yeah. I,
1: there's this controversy there because um so neustadt is one example where uh you know german speaker but um had previously said you know i was born in ukraine my father is ukrainian ukraine is the team that i would Mm -hmm. play for and it's funny how after the war um between russia and ukraine like that kind of statement that he made two three years ago kind of could have come back to bite him yeah and actually in the end russians have taken to him mainly because you know again they have a deficit of talent they'll take they'll take more or less anyone who qualifies
0: huh Interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you about FC Rostov, mm-hmm. a Russian club we are going to see in the Champions League group stage, uh, in the same group as Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. Um, so it means we'll get to see them a fair amount on U.S. television. They have kind of an interesting story, right? I mean, this is... So people
1: have written about Rostov as the Leicester City of Russia. <laughs> in a way, <laughs> as crazy as the Leicester City story was concerned. That underestimates just how (laughs) insane the rise of this team has been. So Rostov, for years, have been this yo-yo team coming Mm. up and down the divisions. They um, appointed as coach a couple of years back um, a guy by the name of Kuban Berdiev. Now, I've got a a trivia question for you, Grant. Uh, uh, Sorry to put you on the spot, but (laughs) since 2008, Barcelona... In the Champions League, playing at home, have only lost to two teams in two matches. Um, one of them was Bayern Munich, um, the year that Jupp Heynckes took them to the to the trophy. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the other team was? In Champions League, yeah. Barcelona at home? Yeah. The only team other than Bayern Munich to win at the new Camp in the last Chelsea? eight years. So, no. So, Chelsea actually got a two-all draw in uh, the okay. year that Torres scored in the yeah. last minute. And Gary Neville did his thing um, <laughs> <laughs> the the team was rubin kazan and huh. Ruben kazan seven eight years ago went to New Camp and came away with a 2-1 win and okay. um berdiev was the coach of kazan at the time okay. and rostov hired him you know not with a view to you know going to win at the new camp mm. at the time it was just to keep the team afloat in the premier league Mm -hmm. and he's got a certain magic he knows how to organize uh, teams knows how to get his players playing for him and they ended up finishing second last year mainly i think because teams just underestimated Mm -hmm. rostov and uh, they had a particularly good year and um had a couple of players a midfielder from ecuador christian naboa being one of them um uh, a young Iranian forward, Asmun, Sardar Asmun, who's worth watching as well. Um,
0: Our producer, by the way, Alex Abnos, just raised a, a thumbs up because he follows Team Meli. is that what they're called? Yes. Yeah. So it must be true. I, I, this is
1: proof that what I'm saying is actually correct and not, not just the figment of my imagination. Um, but here's the crazy thing about Rostov. Despite having qualified for the Champions League, despite having finished second in the Russian Premier League last year, Their players haven't been paid for three months. What? Um, They're owned by... um, The majority shareholding is um, the Rostov regional government. And um, Rostov regional government have been sort of basically financing them on credit for several years, actually. Wow. So when the prize money for qualifying for the Champions League came in, Rostov used it to pay a lot of debts off. And so some of the players have not been paid. Um, They also have this... (laughs) crazy sponsor a guy called Ivan Savidi who uh, as well as being the sort of owner of the company that sponsors Rostov um, Which gives him a certain amount of leverage. He also is part shareholder in a team in Greece Pauk Thessaloniki and yeah. um, He Fell out with Kurban Berdiev, the coach who took them to the Champions League mm-hmm. Over the summer and Berdiev resigned. Huh? And in the intervening period between uh, Rostov qualifying for the Champions League and the match that they will have um, to open their Champions League group stage against Bayern Munich, uh, Berdiev resigned, went to speak to another team in Russia, decided he didn't want to join them, was brought back as a consultant, has now joined the board of directors, and coaching the team at the moment is... um, Basically, a youth coach who <laughs> is the only person on the staff, other than Berdieff who has the requisite UEFA coaching badges. Wow! So uh, the players are practically on strike. The coach that inspired them to the Champions League, you know, uh, has went off in a huff, but then came back anyway, and the team is. Still managing to win matches, surprisingly, but we'll see how they get on in against Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. It doesn't look good, let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, good luck there, guys. Um, few other questions for you. Are there any other really interesting stories like that with with either the Russian League or connected to this World Cup that listeners would like to hear?
1: I mean, I think everything's interesting about Russia. It's, it's just such a different environment such a unusual uh step down i guess from the glitz of the premier league and the you know the kind of professionalism and economic stability of the mls um russia is just teams and players that you've never heard of with histories that are just wild you know there's a team um very very famous old team in Russia, whose name translates as the Wings of the Soviets. They're still <laughs> called the Wings of the Soviets. <laughs> nice. um, there's, uh, you know, there's there's players who, you know, uh, just plied their trade in some very strange places, some really really bizarre clubs where they've 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 toured the f- Russian Far East and had you know. Uh, club spells playing in Kazakhstan's national league and the Uzbek League and, yeah um th- th- that's what's attractive about it um specific stories ongoing at the moment um I think it's got a lot less interesting because of the economic crisis yeah. so there was this big boom in the mid to mid mid2000s to 2012 2013 where teams were buying very big ticket players mm-hmm. St. So Petersburg but Hulk, Axel Witzel. um, You know, uh, and now, unfortunately, because of the financial crisis, because of the introduced limit on foreigners, um, that has kind of ebbed away a little bit. And yeah. some of those crazy stories that you had where Angie Mahachkala were buying Roberto Carlos and giving him a Bugatti Veyron for his birthday. And Eto
0: was like the highest paid player in the world for a while, right? That's
1: right. And kind of swanned around the league, kind of decided when he wanted to play, was <laughs> giving the team talks, that kind of thing. Um, so that's it's a lot less wild in kind of the, the way that money's being splashed around. But still you sort of sniff around And see these ridiculous stories. And the the stadium building projects are are ones to keep an eye on. Any ones besides St. Petersburg? The stadium in Kaliningrad uh, is... uh, (laughs) It's it's got to the stage where there was doubt that Kaliningrad could host. Mm. Um, Same, actually, in uh, Volgograd. Volgograd, Mm. there has been serious questions raised over whether they should just scrap a couple of the host cities. Hmm. Um, Meanwhile, incidentally, uh, there's a team um, privately financed by a very wealthy oligarch in in a city called Krasnodar Mm -hmm. that just built from private money, took them two years, built this brand new stadium, absolutely amazing. And the Russian government overlooked them for um, host city status. So that kind of weird sort of paradox of cities where... You know, the stadium projects have been failing for years. And then a privately financed uh, stadium that gets built overnight but will not be hosting matches. Um, yeah, that's just the story of Russia, I guess.
0: I guess as we wind down here and we're with James Appel, uh, Russian soccer expert, really enjoying this conversation. I'm learning a lot. I hope, I'm sure our listeners will too. Um, you know, I, I look at a couple of things. Um, one in March of 2018 there's going to be a presidential election in Russia so that's just a couple months before the World Cup everyone expects Putin to run and to win at this point right I mean like that's that's what I've read at least I mean like what how might that influence the World Cup I
1: think I think it might be an idea to ask me next week because uh, <laughs> they're just about to hold Russian parliamentary elections yeah and I, whilst the The kinds of protests that you saw on the streets of Moscow and other major cities in uh, 2013-14, that's been dampened down a bit because legislation was brought in effectively limiting Russian citizens' right to protest. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a whole other story, by the way. (laughs) Um, But uh, the the political climate has definitely... um, I want to say calm down, but I think I think it's been suppressed by force is probably mm. a more accurate um, representation. We'll see how these parliamentary elections pan out. Okay. Um, but the, the 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 reality is, you know, Vladimir Putin came back um, to the Kremlin um, after a term of President Medvedev with a view to staying on until you know 2024. Mm. That was never really the openly stated intention, but with six year presidential terms and mm-hmm. a limit of two in a row, the reality is that was that was the outcome. And most Russians have, if not made peace with that idea, uh, are certainly not really um, considering other alternatives very seriously. Mm-hmm. So how will the March 2018 um, presidential elections turn out? Um, at this stage, anything other than a vladimir putin win and absolute stability ahead of the world cup looks highly unlikely
0: okay um as far as russia is concerned as a soccer country this is a soccer country right even if we in don't theory. like with the history in this sport sure like and it goes beyond lev yashin as a goal as a great goalkeeper who's an amazing story mm-hmm. but like I think some people here look at it as like, oh, Russia's hosting World Cup 2018. You know, it's it's like Qatar, not a soccer country. But that's, that's totally wrong. Yeah, it, right. So statistically speaking,
1: culturally speaking, however you want to look at it, soccer is the number one sport in Russia. Um, hockey is a very close second. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is that um, there is... Problems that Russia is facing um, in its sporting environment and, you know, we've just had the Olympics passed where, you know, those problems, some of them have been laid very bare, that there are institutional corruption, drug-taking, and a general malaise. Um, That has spread to soccer, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Audiences for the Russian Premier League, um, both on TV and in the stadium, have been falling since 2010. Mm. Um, And there's a general perception that Russia is having some kind of sporting crisis. Hmm. Um, that being said, you are right. You know, in terms of uh, Russian popular, you know, sporting preferences, yeah, soccer is number one. Um, m- most people that I know in Russia, um, at least tangentially, you know, keeping up with world world soccer they're keeping up with what's happening in the english premier league they're Mm -hmm. keeping up with italy and germany it's on tv they have cable showing soccer almost you know year round Mm -hmm. um there's a clear culture of um celebrating russian national soccer talent and clubs who are successful so it isn't quite the story that qatar is of a frankly a backwater with no real tradition um yeah. you know you, you name drop lev Yashin, but you can go back to the 1988 ussr team that reached the final of euros and there's a one to eleven there with some huge names um and i think that in the early 90s after the fall of the soviet union russia took some time to really reestablish itself there was a Huge economic and political chaos um, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union and Russia Really Russians did not have time or money for for sports Um, But since since the Putin um, era began in 2000, you know, there's been investment and Russia is slowly getting back to I think the level of interest and investment that you know was experienced before the collapse of the Soviet Union So yeah, it's it's a soccer country.
0: Sure Well, you got me really thinking ahead now for two years, and uh, really appreciate you coming on and and talking about this topic, and we'll have you back on the podcast uh, between now and 2018, because I, I think this is something that people here are really interested in as we count down the next two years. James Appel, thanks for joining the Planet Football Podcast. Thank you, Grant.